Welcome to the Procurement Show. Hello and welcome to The Procurement Show, the show that tackles the topics we all need to think about and sets out to explore the more interesting bits of procurement. I'm Jonathan O'Brien. And I'm Paul Philpot. My role is to make Jonathan a fresh cup of coffee at least three times a day. And you will. Mm. This week we're looking at procurement behind the everyday things that we buy. When we shop, often we have no idea how sustainable what we buy is or what the retailer is doing to drive sustainability. But increasingly, consumers want to know, and increasingly, retailers are finding that they need to be doing more. So we thought that we would explore how one very progressive retailer is tackling sustainability in its supply chains. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organisations around the globe. Aldi is a global success story that started in 1946 as a discount supermarket and today across the Aldi South Group there are more than 7,000 stores in 11 countries. Aldi has ambitious growth plans and last year in the US Aldi was the fastest growing US supermarket retailer. And in the UK, a YouGov survey just named Aldi as the nation's favourite supermarket. Aldi is also one of the most progressive retailers in terms of sustainability and here to help us find out a little bit more is someone who is part of the team driving this. She's been a consultant for the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. She holds a Master's in Business and Development Studies from Copenhagen Business School and is the Director of Sustainability Strategy for Aldi South. Please welcome to The Procurement Show, Katharina Waterman. Katharina, hello. It's brilliant to have you on the show. Hello, Jonathan. It's a delight to be here with you on The Procurement Show. And can I just say, mm, actually, yeah. this interview has been in our calendar for numerous weeks now. Yeah. And I have been uber excited about it. Yeah, we all are. Because all are. I just love anything that really immediately touches the consumer because I'm yeah. very interested in this. So I might even geek out on a few occasions. <laughs> I apologise if I have a geeky moment. That's all right, okay. That, that wouldn't be uncommon for you to have a geeky moment. I guess the starting point is, where do you start if you've got this huge global retailing business how do you start to make it sustainable there must be thousands and thousands of different items on the shelves and they must come from all over the world with all sorts of risks and impacts in terms of sustainability that seems like a pretty daunting task so katharina where do you start well that's a very good question and i wish i could give you an easy answer i think it all starts with understanding which topics are really most material for you as a business and also for our stakeholders. So, for example, as a food retailer, we can't really ignore topics around land use, water, healthy nutrition, animal welfare. Well, these topics would most likely not be so material for, a, let's say, an IT company. Mm-hmm. And this is exactly where we start. So we conduct a materiality assessment to ensure that we prioritize those issues with the greatest impact on people and nature. And the maturity assessment actually also helps us to get in touch with critical stakeholders like NGOs, customers, but also our suppliers, employees, to also make sure that their perspective is actually reflected. And once we know which topics are material for us, we then try to understand which of our products or supply chains are mostly impacted. So there are some supply chains that are riskier than others. It depends on the type of product, the manufacturing process. So for example, if you have a lot of labor involved or if the location of the production is in the country where, for example, governance gaps exist or also where we have low regularly enforcement mechanisms Mm. when it comes, for example, to human and environmental rights. And this is then where we started because it actually gives us the opportunity to understand where we as a company 
should focus our resources on and then create the biggest impact. So it's about looking at everything that you have on the shelves and saying, which of these things has the biggest impact, whether that's environmental mm -hmm. or social. Yeah, okay, that's big. It's very big. Actually, I'm quite interested with regards to how Aldi sets its direction here. Mm. Taking a look at your website, you set out the 2030 vision as being making sustainability affordable to our customers and that Aldi wants to become a front runner in offering sustainable products at the best price. Sustainability must not be a luxury. We want to make sustainable products available at a discount price for all our customers around the world. Now, to me, that really does sound like the ideal thing that yep. every business should be Absolutely, doing. Absolutely, yeah. Obviously, we don't live in the perfect world, but the more and more we go to talk about making products sustainable and the sustainable procurement and the supply chain, the more I keep on thinking that actually it's still the case that us consumers end up paying more for this. Yep. It's like the cool luxury product it's to like buy. It's like a cost. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, surely that shouldn't be the case. You obviously don't want that to be the case. So, is it really possible for sustainability to cost less? And what do we all need to do to achieve that? Oh, you're uh, giving me the... <laughs> That's a good question. In 30 seconds, doing. please. <laughs> wow, okay, no, even more. Only joking about the 30 seconds. <laughs> it depends what you mean with cost less. Should it cost less than conventionally produced products or should it cost less than those products that we are now considering sustainable because we have a certification on it or a label on it? And I think where the food industry is right now, it's almost impossible to produce sustainably at the same cost price as those that we considered conventionally produced. Because our food system is actually really set up to deliver cheap foods with almost no restriction on using natural capital as an input. There are some trade-offs that we need to accept, but as a discount retailer, we really want, and you said it, we need to offer our customer attractive prices. And therefore, our aim is to really achieve it through business efficiency, I would say. So it's by really staying true to our principles and keeping our internal structures lean, focusing on the essentials, so having really a limited product range, but also then adapting our buying practices, for example. So we have started to internationalize our buying practices. We started to bundle volumes wherever possible. And we have also looked into, for example, shortening supply chains, really going to the source. And that actually helps us then to pass this on, these efficiencies to the customer, which is for us very relevant. I think what is really important as well, so sorry, I'm going beyond the 30 seconds here. No, I was only joking okay. about it. You keep going, keep going. Yes. We have really started to look beyond the challenges and really look into opportunities. So, for example, if you look into some areas of sustainability, you really see great win-win situations. We take, for example, the aspect of food waste and food loss. Mm. If you take the numbers, one third of the food that is produced globally is actually lost. And food waste has enormous challenges when it comes to sustainability because it's intensifies food insecurity, it increases pressure on natural resources that go into producing the food in the first place. And it's a major contributor to crisis of climate change. And I read it actually the last week. If food waste was the country, it would be the third biggest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. Wow. That's not something that you would see as such a big thing. But a third of all global food goes to waste. I mean, that's just a mind-blowing statistic. It's preposterous, actually. I mean, that's fascinating. The fact that on the one hand, there is a cost to doing this. But on the other hand, this should save us money. Because I guess if we're able to reduce the consumption of 
resources, reduce the amount of CO2 we're producing. That should save money. It should be cheaper to be sustainable if we can pull it off, right? Exactly, exactly. And that would be my point. Food waste actually is an indication of inefficiencies, yeah. inefficiencies mm. in your supply chain, inefficiencies in your own operations. So everything you can do to reduce food waste actually could have or should have a positive economic impact as well. And this is where we also are starting to looking at how can we create these win-win situations. And for that, you really need to start to look beyond your traditional processes. You need mm. to start to innovate. You need to really dare and accept also failures sometimes. Yeah. But what is really important is that you shake them off and you try it again. You mentioned about food waste. Obviously, you can't take all the blame because inefficiencies are also applied by the consumer as well. We buy things and we throw things away too easily. Yeah. We consider the best before date as a deadline. It's just best mm-hmm. before. Very few people cook. Yeah. And I noticed that actually within your product range, you've embraced the concept of the wonky. You've got the type of food produce that other supermarkets may well reject. Obviously, that's a proactive attempt and a great success in terms of minimizing food waste, making food available. And I think that's a really good diversification of your product line because you You're ticking so many boxes just by making that small change. It is. And actually, it's also well accepted because in the end, the food is good. It's great. And it can be used as the other like spotless food. So it's one of the many measures that we are actually taking to reduce food waste. And you also said it, a lot of food waste is actually happening with the customer. And then also there, it's our responsibility to actually make everyone aware about the impact and also make facilitate that the products are not thrown away through exactly these kind of measures. I'm interested in how Aldi actually does this. You gave us the mission statement earlier, the 2030 vision statement but how has the company set itself up so that sustainability is an integral part of what it does and i guess the fact that we're here today talking to you you're the director of sustainability strategy that suggests that there's a team in place here doing this stuff so tell us a little bit about the setup what does it look like and Crucially, does this go to the top of the organization? We do have quite a big team in place. And I can confidentially say it's actually a really motivated, highly skilled team who drives the sustainability agenda forward every day. So apart from what we call the International CR Department, which I'm part of, we have sustainability teams in all the countries where we operate. And we do have two CI units, how we call them, one in Bangladesh and one in China, who then work in our sourcing markets close closely with the factories and the suppliers. And what is really great is that sustainability has become a top priority of the management and the top management especially. So they have become closely involved in setting our strategy and we do have their support in this area. And this is really important to drive change throughout the organization. I think we're all in agreement that we all need to be sustainable in this better way as we can. I kind of struggled with regards to what that means in every single situation. And I think as a consumer, you do things like you buy a bottle of shampoo or coffee or something like an everyday item. And I think you kind of put your faith in the retailer that they're doing yeah. all the right things Absolutely. in the background. Because I can't make shampoo. You know, It's not the sort of thing I can buy the ingredients to do myself. So... The more and more we talk about this, the more I come to question how and what we buy and thinking twice about what I put in my shopping basket. So 
if I'm making those positive decision-making processes, then surely lots of other customers must be doing exactly mm-hmm. the same thing. So yep. how do you monitor the customer's needs, the customer's desire to make changes? How do you educate the customer's desire to Absolutely. want to make changes? Yep. And then, of course, you've got to roll that out throughout your entire supply chain, haven't you? Yeah, that's actually a tricky one because, of course, we do strongly listen to our customers when it comes to our product folio and also the sustainability-related aspects to it. But I think what's also important for us as a multinational company is really that we cannot forget that we have much, much wider stakeholder base we also need to engage and we need to listen towards. So this includes NGOs, suppliers, communities, workers we work in, governments, and all these stakeholders actually do then influence our sustainability strategy and also our product portfolio in the end. And what is great, what we have seen, I mean, of course, through regular surveys, studies, and so on, we actually do see that there is a huge shift in customer demand, and that especially the younger generation is much more conscious about the choices. They put sustainability really into the center of their buying decisions. And while there is a strong focus on certification and labels, so something that is actually displayed on the product, we do see that there's a tendency that the customer looks beyond beyond that and really looks more into how does the company position itself when it comes, for example, to contributing to mitigate global challenges. So really addressing the food crisis, fighting climate change or any other sustainability related challenges. Also, for example, like how companies are reacting to natural disasters, how they're supporting the community. And for us, this is a very, very positive development Mm -hmm. because we can much more tell the customers through other channels what we are actually doing because... Mm -hmm. How would you actually display on a product how your human rights due diligence process looks like and what you're doing in that area? So this is actually really great. The Procurement Show. Exploring the more interesting bits about procurement. And now, the Procurement Fun Fact. This edition's exciting tale of preposterous procurement, bizarre buying, or simply saucy sourcing. Public sector procurement accounts for around 12% of gross domestic product across the world's most developed nations. That's equivalent to $11 trillion. The Procurement Fun Fact. Contact us by email. Hello at theprocurementshow.com. Send us a tweet at Procurement Show or connect with us on LinkedIn. Search for The Procurement Show. I'm interested in whether the suppliers are ready to do this. Is this just a case of going to the suppliers and saying, look, you know, we want this product to be more sustainable, so change the packaging, perhaps, you know, fill it a bit higher so we're not shipping air. You know, is it as simple as you just change the requirements and the supplier say, hey, okay, yeah, we'll do that? (laughs) Or is it more Mm. than that? I would say this is actually an easy answer. It's not just a change in requirements, of course. And no, I would say the suppliers are not ready to just implement that. And that's completely okay because... I'm saying most of the suppliers, because we do have multinational companies as our suppliers who have a really great sustainability performance, who have really good solid programs. But most of our suppliers actually are small and medium-sized enterprises, and they do not have neither the knowledge nor the capabilities to understand requirements that you would just send to them. They just don't know what it means. Also, what's very important is most of the sustainability solutions are just not straightforward because every supply chain is different every product is different so you need solutions that are actually then 
really are targeted to the specific challenges in the supply chain. And for that, you need to find approaches that work not just for us as a company, but also for our suppliers. And for this, you really need a dialogue. I'm really pleased to hear that you mentioned that's such a big part of your supply base that consists of SMEs. Surely that comes with both benefits and also with challenges because we're mentioning about changing specifications and helping suppliers provide your services and products in a certain way. So how do you help your suppliers to come along on that journey with you? I mean, do you do things like invest in them or maybe knowledge share with them or perhaps kind of work with them a bit closely on their back office and their Mm -hmm. overall processes? in order to make them sustainable? How do you actually engage with them to achieve that? Actually, we do almost everything that you just mentioned. And again, it depends very much on the supply chain, the suppliers. But what we did recognize is that you can only, through a really strong supplier base, build resilient and sustainable supply chains. And again, while you already mentioned most of the investments, I think there's one investment that is mostly underestimated Mm -hmm. and which is highly, highly critical for success. And this is actually time. So especially at the beginning, when you start engaging with your suppliers, you really need to know your supplier base. You need to understand the specific capabilities. You need to understand what they can offer you, but also where their limitations are. And at the same time, you need to make them aware what you need from them. And then the result of this time investment actually can materialize in further knowledge sharing, joint investment. It can be multi-year contracts or joint projects in the supply chain. But again, it's first important to understand each other and each other's needs. And I guess when it comes to the immediate suppliers, to a degree that's straightforward because you've got a contract with them, you can go and visit them, you can start sort of talking about this stuff. But in some cases, they are just that first step in Mm. what could be a very big supply chain that could run to remote parts of the world where legislation is different. You know, they don't follow the same rules or they're not able to. Perhaps they're not as developed. And things can be much, much more hidden. Plus, we don't have a contractual relationship with those remote players. How do you begin to do that? Because how do you actually understand a supply chain and then figure out where are the things that we're worried about here? And then how do you actually drive change? I would say apart from the risk analysis, which I briefly mentioned at the beginning, it's really about learning and listening and then taking informed decisions together with those that are affected. So often when it comes to sustainability, especially related to human rights, many companies, and I don't really want to exclude us completely, we can be a little bit presumptuous because we believe we know the answers. So we believe we know what factories, farm owners, workers in our supply chain, what they need. And then we start implementing programs, we adjust our processes, and we are surprised that actually no impact is generated because we have never spoken to them. And this is currently changing also with Analdi. So the dialogue that I already mentioned is really becoming part of our buying process. And we want to understand the impact our decisions have on the people and the environment and then take joint actions to really drive the improvements. So 
Just to give you an example, one quite easy exercise is that we are increasing our trips to sourcing countries together with the buying team. So we are really visiting the factories, the farms together, because really being there, talking to those in the supply chain, in the lower tiers, you start to get insights and understand how everything is correlated or interrelated. I remember at the very beginning when we first did these trips, we were all quite surprised because There were certain approval processes that were part of our day-to-day decisions and we had properly mapped them. We had really put timeframes behind these approval processes. They all worked well from a company perspective, from our perspective. But what we then figured out is that they actually created regular bottlenecks in the factory and for the production of our products. And this had implications on the quality, on the cost of production, but also it had implications on the labor practices of the factory. And by just sitting together, understanding the situation, and then talking about possible solutions really helps to drive improvement. And this is then also where long-lasting change actually starts. That's really encouraging to hear. And it kind of fits with what others have told me. Also, I used to be a quality auditor, so I used to go and audit companies. And the thing I learned is it didn't matter how many questionnaires they did, how much sales stuff they gave you remotely. When you went to visit the company, when we would walk in there and we would meet the people, we would talk to the people, we would see how things are flowing, we would see the look and the feel and what was going on. There is no substitute for eyes on the ground, seeing what happens, looking at possibilities. And I think it's exactly the same when we talk about sustainability. You've got to go and see them firsthand. Mm. You've got to get there, see them, understand them, live and breathe them for a bit, and then you can figure out what's wrong and what needs to change, I think. Completely agree with you, because as you already said, we have products that are produced in so many different countries, in so many different cultural environments. And you can't just assume that a one size fits all Mm. approach actually drives improvements and actually is the right fit for different cultural backgrounds or for different production processes even. Um, So it's being on the ground, talking to your business partners is essential to drive change. This is all really good stuff. And I'm going to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. The supermarket industry with regards to its supply chain relationships doesn't have the best press in the United Kingdom. Without naming names, there are a few players out there who are known for being a bit on the pressurised side. What you're saying makes me genuinely believe that you're the good guys. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to say no to them. So, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's quite. It stands up for itself, <laughs> you know I think. I mean? it, yeah. it does, because, you know, you start peeling back the layers, which people are doing, yes. and you start asking these questions. And we said it right at the start, you know, when you go in and you look at what's on the shelves, you assume that the people that put that they have done all the hard work to make sure it's good. Mm. And now we, the consumer, are realizing actually you can't take that for granted. So, you've got to kind of think about. Okay, who's in charge here? What are they doing? Yeah, but you are working in a very difficult landscape. I mean, the world that we're in at the moment, we all know anything can happen. It's kind of quite a volatile environment for everybody, let alone somebody who has such a complex supply chain as yourselves. Does that occasionally mean, with things changing so rapidly, that you have needed to make dramatic supply chain decisions? There are wars, really big things that have made difference. So do you actually end up abandoning some traditional supply chains or indeed entire parts of the world where you have to supply from or even cut out 
several layers and go straight to the original farmers or producers to buy straight from them? And how do you manage that kind of transition? Yeah, but I think it's exactly what it means. So from a sustainability perspective, it's impossible to control the supply chain and the risks associated to it, to it if you work through for example, transactional supplier relationships, if you have an opaque, really complex supply chain. And we are at the stage where we really need to question who is involved in the supply chain, where are products coming from and why. So, for example, to make it a little bit more practical, we recently looked at our cashew supply chain. And while West Africa is actually the biggest producer of raw cashew nuts, I think it accounts for about 60% of the global harvest, only 10% of the African cashews are actually also processed there. So meaning cracked, shelled, sorted. What happens is that the raw cashews are shipped to Vietnam and India before then traveling back to Europe and to yes, then be sold in our stores. And this long journey can make it really, really difficult to maintain transparency, to ensure human rights are respected, but it also makes your supply chain much more volatile. So what we did is we analyzed the supply chain together with our direct suppliers in much more detail and then decided to invest into partnerships opportunities in West Africa. And we chose certain smallholder farmers, cashew suppliers and processors to then grow capabilities really in the region. And this way, we support the livelihood of the farmers, we support the factory workers and their families to really ensuring that they get a fair pay, but also that there is a long-term community development. And by processing really close to the growing sites, the cashews are not only fresher and less traveled, but it also really builds up a more resilient and diverse supply chain because we make our less much less dependent on different players and geopolitical developments. Mm -hmm. So not every supply chain, of course, can be handled like this, but there are opportunities to really do that and then go into the supply chain and question, do we need this stuff? Do we Mm -hmm. need this player in it? Can we shorten? Can we maybe relocate in order to make them shorter and make them more transparent and controllable? And that process analysis and change was just to do with cashews. Just cashews. Exactly. So I guess multiply that by however many SKUs are in there, however many items are on the shelf. You know, that's a phenomenal undertaking. And what was interesting in that was you're building new relationships with those producers who are closer and perhaps even changing the processing that happens there. It's time to Ask Jonathan. Today's Ask Jonathan comes from Juan Ramirez. I hope I have pronounced that correctly. He asks, is it okay to get suppliers to pay to participate in a tender exercise? No, definitely not. This is a great question. And there has been a sort of trend in recent years that I've noticed as companies have been running a tender process, there's been a requirement for suppliers to pay to participate, not Mm. directly with the company that's running the tender exercise, but through the platform provider. So it's delivered as some sort of e-sourcing RFP through a particular platform. And if somebody wants to participate, they have to pay an administration fee to the platform provider and sign up and then get all these other benefits of being on that platform beyond that it happens and there's typically no law against it it would conflict in the public sector so it's not illegal but it's not good practice and it's not ethical so the idea of asking a supplier to pay to participate 
creates that unusual dynamic. It creates a sense of obligation that there's going to be more there. But I think also the fact that we know that very few tenders are run well. You know, very few tender processes actually add good value. More often than not, it's a procurement person going through a process because that's the process the company has. Those are the rules they have to do. It's badly run, badly delivered, badly scored, doesn't give the opportunity for a supply base to truly show what's possible and the innovation it can bring so that's the kind of starting point and quite often people are in there just to make the numbers up so the supplier that they want to go with in the first place is going to be chosen so asking a company to pay to do that is just wrong and then if you play that out more fully if you're a big global organization and you are putting out a tender to SMEs, you're then a big global organization asking an SME to pay for the privilege of producing a tender. So not illegal, not good practice. We get this in my company mm -hmm. where people ask us to tender and you have to pay typically 500 euros, something like that to be on the platform. We have a policy that if there's any payment required to participate in a tender, we will decline right from the start. No quibble. Great question, Juan. I'm going to ask a supplementary question to that. What would you say to organisations who are using such platforms? I would think carefully about the optics of doing this because it only takes one supplier to say, hang on, we paid all this money to submit a tender for you. You appear to have ignored us. You appear to have not been that serious about us anyway. And your corporate social responsibility policy, your CR policy says that you seek to promote suppliers, support suppliers, perhaps has a social value policy. Typically, that sort of practice is more often than not in conflict with stated CR objectives the companies have. So look at the optics as if somebody calls that out, how's it going to look? As a business, how do you navigate around that situation? Can you ask to submit your proposal via a different means? So let me tell you something that happened to us. Yeah. We had this and I said, no, we're not going to tender if we have to pay. And what this particular client did was say, actually, OK, we'll pay that for you because we really want a tender from you. So I said, OK, so if you take the need to pay out of it, we'll submit a tender. But they didn't do that for the other suppliers that had made tenders as well. So that's just not right, just not fair. So I'm very upfront to say, no, we're not going to participate in anything where you require us to pay to submit a tender. What a great question. Fantastic answer. If you've got a question that you'd like to ask Jonathan, here's how to get in touch. Ask Jonathan. Email your question to jonathan at theprocurementshow.com and you might be part of the next show. The Procurement Show. The latest thinking, the greatest insights. I think the relationships is a key theme that seems to come out here. So building relationships with some of the new producers, what about the relationships with some of the sort of traditional suppliers? And if we think, if we go back to what you said, you know, here in the UK, the retail industry doesn't necessarily have the best record because it's wielded its huge power mm. and pushed prices of small producers down. So if we start with that in mind, then traditionally leverage has come by wielding that sort of commercial, this is what we've got to spend, this is the power we have. So if we're going to have these new relationships and we're going to require suppliers to drive sustainability, then how does that change? Because I guess if on the one hand you're taking away that traditional commercial tension, that competitive tension that you'd use and maybe putting where you put just short term contracts in, give me the best price. I'm going to do this for 12 months and then, you know, we'll look at the market again. That suggests we're replacing that 
with more of a sort of relationship type approach. So I guess the question is, if sustainability now becomes a key requirement, does this dilute the commercial leverage? And how do you get over that? Mm -hmm. I would actually say it's exactly the opposite. I would say it strengthens the relationship and also the commercial leverage. I actually once heard from a colleague from another industry saying that their relationship with suppliers is a three-leg chair. So if you break one of them, the whole construct collapses. And I always thought this is a really nice example because this way everyone really pulls on the same strings and makes things happen which are unimaginable in a transactional tender-driven relationship. And of course, this cannot be one directional. So it's really that we as a company need to give, but then the suppliers, of course, need to give it back. And nobody can risk to then damage the commercial relationship as well. So it's sustainability really enables us to go new ways and rethink all the approaches. And what is really nice, for example, we have started to pilot projects where actually sustainability defines the way we buy. So questions mm -hmm. we want to get answered really is how long do contractual terms need to go to drive actual change? Oh, wow. Open cost models need to look like in order to cover cost of production, taking sustainability costs into account. Or what do we need to do in order to really go directly to the source? So these are questions that we are answering or trying to find the answer to. We don't have the answer to all of this yet. But it actually shows that the way we're buying is actually changing. And we have so far nothing else than really good responses and the willingness to cooperate. So I'm going to assume the answer to this next question is yes, <laughs> or it's very much that you're on a journey. But I assume that you're procurement teams have sustainability as an integral part of everything that they do, that you've actually trained your procurement teams so that sustainability is part of the day-to-day -day with regards to how they engage with suppliers. Exactly. We do have different training programs in place. I would say it all starts with an onboarding training. So if a new buyer comes in, we have an onboarding training on our sustainability strategy, but then also, and that's very important, what is their contribution to achieve the sustainability strategy because the tendency is often there that you say oh yeah it's your strategy from the sustainability department you know it's like your goals and we directly want to make clear no it's our goals it's Aldi goals and you're part of that and you need to work towards the achievement of those goals but beside the onboarding training we do have regular trainings for our buying teams really on sustainability related topics it could be very specific then to the seafood supply chain or to the textile supply chain and what was actually really really great is that we had the opportunity last year to actually get involved into a training that was driven by the buying teams and we actually tried to link sustainability into the training so that we were able to speak the buyer's language and I think this is the best way of training to really make an intriguing part of their commercial training and their day-to-day -day doing because this is how they start to see it as a normal part of the business. Wow so the two have to go hand in hand for it to have exactly. a sustainability together with procurement. I heard a story recently and this fascinated me. So I thought I would ask you about it. So this was about flowers that were being picked and harvested in a remote part of the world. And what was happening is that there would be the harvest and then various retailers would all go to that place and they would then bid for lots and 
it turned out that the flowers were being picked by children, which apparently is a typical practice for this particular crop and this particular region. And the farmer was very open about it. And some of the retailers just didn't care. They just wanted lower price. And a few others kind of just questioned it. And the farmer said, look, you know, if you want flowers picked by legitimate labor, then you need to pay more. And there are lots of examples like that where actually when it comes down to it, you know, there are these human mm. rights which are being compromised somewhere mm. in the supply chain because workers are being paid nothing or very little. And yet you have somebody saying, look, if you pay more, we can make it better. How do you begin to tackle that? And is paying more the answer? Again, a tricky question, but I would actually say the answer is no, because that would be an easy solution still. But as you said, we are often not the only clients. And sometimes we even have limited to zero influence over those farms because they are seven to eight years up in our supply chain. And this is, of course, not an excuse. But what I want to say is we don't even have a contractual relationship with these farmers directly. Mm, yeah. Nor do we actually control their operations. We are not the ones actually that control their payroll or that control their hiring practices. So because I've worked a lot in textiles. I like to always refer to cotton because it has similar problems. The cotton farmers are so removed from our operations. We have six, seven, eight tiers in between. And sometimes, or mostly, it's even bought through the stock market. So there is almost no leverage that we have on the cotton farmers. So just paying more would not reach where it's actually needed. Mm. And Mm. this is where I'm coming back to. You really need to change the way you buy. You need to change your supply chains. And if you really want to change something there, you need to go to the source. For example, what we are currently doing in cotton is that we also recognize exactly that problem. And we have partnered up with one of our business partners and went directly down to the cotton farmers. And now we're cooperating with about a thousand smallholder farmers to transition from conventional cotton to organic cotton. And then we support them in the transition process. But this, of course, also enables us to be closely to them, to understand their mindset, to understand their practices and to understand what they need. And then we can react to these challenges. And at the same time, by working with them directly, we also have a different leverage on them. So it's not us and, I know, a hundred other retailers that work with them. And this way we can then also make them much more aware about what are our expectations, what are the standards that we want them to fulfill. And this way we are then transitioning to a better situation. But again, it's nothing you can do across all your supply chains because it's a lot of work. And there is, again, not this one-size-fits-all solution. So because it works with a little bit of cotton, it doesn't mean it works with all of the cotton that you source. And it doesn't mean that because you made it in cotton, it works in flowers. So it's really a slow path towards improvements. But we are there and we're getting there. And I just want to check, I heard you right there. Did you say you've worked with a thousand cotton farmers? You partnered with a thousand cotton farmers? Exactly. We do that through a network of partners, of course, and cooperatives. So that, of course, helps us to manage them these relationships. So that's incredible. That gives you an idea of the scale. So that's just one commodity. Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that just reinforces what we said earlier. You've got to get back to source. You've got to understand what's going on there. 
And I guess there are many examples like this where all the producers are very small concerns. You've got to go and then get to each of those individually. Wow, that's incredible. It's actually insane. Yeah. Because we've already mentioned cashews. You mentioned cotton. Yeah. Well, the next time I'm in a supermarket, I'm really going to look at things a different way. You mentioned the cotton industry. I have to bring this into our discussion. You are actually wearing an Aldi T-shirt. That's a pretty (laughs) cool T-shirt. You're certainly a brand that likes to have fun. Yeah. And I think that's great. You're very active on social media. You're very good at enjoying what you do and helping consumers enjoy what you do. And no doubt, you're very good at helping suppliers enjoy what they do and how they're part of that journey with you. I'm assuming it's not a social media joke, but I've seen something about Aldi Das. Ah, okay. This is a UK thing. Just actually. a UK? Oh, just a yes, UK thing. Yes, just UK. Yes, and uh, chapeau to the buyer, actually. Ah, okay. <laughs> I thought it was really creative. <laughs> I think that's great. Just for the purposes of everyone listening to the podcast, they are for trendy people, not like you and I, Jonathan. They're called slides. Okay. And they're like slippers, basically, but trendy hey, slippers. Hey, I'm old enough for slippers. Well, okay. But are you old enough for Aldidas or young I, enough for Aldidas? I think I could, Very I, cool. I could carry those off. Very cool. I just love it. And the brand, they've actually just added on didas onto the yeah. end of the logo it works a play with the concept play with the packaging actually packaging packaging it seems that packaging alone is an area where i certainly consider there to be too much waste and too much plastic yeah and of course not everything is recyclable so mm-hmm. how are you engaging with regards to the topic of packaging and helping make sure that very essential part of the buyer experience the selling experience and the supply chain is becoming sustainable yeah, packaging is a huge challenge. And of course, we are tackling this very proactively. I think, first of all, what I need to clarify, and it might be a little bit difficult to understand, but plastic per se is not really evil. It's actually a really highly efficient and effective material. But what we need to do is to improve the management of it, meaning the design, the life management, Um, to reduce harmful impacts. But besides of that, you're right, there is far too much waste and plastic in the industry, and we need to use less, design it better, manage it much more appropriately. And what we do as a global retailer is we need to understand the recycling infrastructure available in each of our markets because they are very, very different. Um, So what we have done is we have set up a recyclability guide for our suppliers to then use materials which can be recycled in each of the markets that they and we operate. And what is, of course, important here, and I said it beforehand, is the upskilling of the buying teams. And we need to make them aware about the importance of sustainable packaging. And we need to back this up with technical support to then really integrate sustainable packaging into everyday business. And we did expand the technical support. We have built up expertise in our teams, in the buying teams and the sustainability teams, so that we can also work with our suppliers to make sure that they meet our packaging goals. So we have set out very clear recycling and reduction targets, which we want to meet until 2025. So this has also then become an important criteria, for example, when we are selecting new suppliers, that we want them to seek the same level of ambition when it comes to sustainable packaging. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. It's good to know that the whole thing is being tackled from packaging through to the thing that's yeah, inside it. Absolutely. And it's very interesting, actually, what was mentioned about geographical differences yeah, yeah, with regards to packaging yeah. and recycling. I'm someone who spends half my life in the United Kingdom and half my life in Hungary and Budapest. Yeah. Do and they have recycling there? They do, but it's not as a big thing okay. as it is over here. Yeah. You know, my kitchen's got 18 bins in it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Only the 18? Only the 18. I've got 23. Have you? Yeah. Oh, I knew you'd jump me on that. <laughs> because we recycle everything in the United Kingdom but yeah. over there whilst recycling is on the agenda it just doesn't seem to be such a part of everyday no. life from and, the consumers and side. it changes in other parts of the world as yeah. well in the US it's not quite so developed there's whole parts of the world that just don't recycle not yet anyway it just, just gets dumped it's interesting that you're looking at those geographical differences and then being able to respond to what is the right strategy in country I hadn't realised that that would even be a necessary thing We've come to the end of the show, mm -hmm. and we always like to finish by talking about takeaways. Yes. Aldi don't do takeaways as such. I think you can get a coffee and there's stuff from bakery. You could say that's like a takeaway type <laughs> thing. Yes. I've learned a lot. This has been fabulous, by the way. I've learned so much that it's just blown my mind. Working with a thousand cotton farmers, that's just incredible. It's that what, emoji where the brain's I know. going yeah, yeah. in your head. I, yeah, I'm yeah. still processing yeah. it all. <laughs> what would be your three takeaways for driving sustainable procurement? I would say understand your supply chain, seek the dialogue with your business partners, even with the lower tiers of your supply chain, because you cannot develop impactful solutions without those who in the end need to implement it. Be innovative and daring. If you stick to the same processes and only add sustainability to it and see it as an on top thing, it will cost you. So rethink, innovate and scale those approaches that work and then get your top management to commit to your sustainability goals because only then employees and especially also the buying teams actually feel empowered to then do what I just mentioned. Katharina Wardman, thank you so much for joining us on the procurement show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invite. The pleasure is all mine. You've been listening to The Procurement Show. Contact us by email, hello at theprocurementshow.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn, search for The Procurement Show, and on Twitter at Procurement Show. Visit us at theprocurementshow.com. The Procurement Show is brought to you by Positive Purchasing, enabling the future of procurement in organizations around the globe. Copyright Positive Purchasing. All rights reserved. Produced by Fresh Air Studios.